on, and it's, you're not you're not in Mercedes territory. You're in Acura Integra territory. Uh, hey, and that's not a bad place to be, man. Do you <laughs> have you seen the? You remember the like the confetti seats? That's what I got, like black with the confetti in the center. Those are those are tight, man. All this can be yours. Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Yeah, buddy. Happy Thursday morning. It's the Tropical MBA Podcast. It's Tropical MBA Podcast, boss man. Since 2009, bringing you, I don't know, the beat on location independent business. It's just getting easier to start a business that allows you to build wealth while living wherever you want, even if you own a forklift. We've managed to do it. Boss man, how you doing this week? What's new in your world? By the way, let's get some uh, let's get some EST EST two thousand nine T shirts that like that faded look, you know, <laughs> that kind of scripty thing. We'll put those I'm on the put website. That at the top for of sale. the website, yeah. Since two thousand nine, it's the real deal. Yeah, I'm doing it. I'm doing good, man. Hey, I'm keeping it real here in San Diego. I'm going to be here for a little bit, as you know. So, what did I have to do last week? Was I had to get myself another entrepreneur mobile? No way. And uh, we've talked about entrepreneur mobiles before. And uh, what they are are fully depreciated vehicles <laughs> because everybody knows a vehicle is a, is, a, is, a, is a depreciating asset. There's very few vehicles that aren't depreciating assets. So what you do is you go out and you find yourself one that's depreciated all the way to the bottom. That's what I did. So and it just happens to be one of my dream cars. Cut the suspense, so, brother. What are, you, what are you driving? Is it a, is it a Mercedes, a BMW, a, 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 an Italian sports car? Close, close. <laughs> 1998 Acura Integra, one of my, my all-time man. favorites. My man. You know, most – again, trying to separate this podcast from other shows, most internet marketers are just can't wait to show you the fine European sports car that they drive. You, on the other hand, don't respect a, a, a purchase, a car purchase unless there's at least 200,000 miles on the tag. I, I, I'm not shy, though. I will take a picture of myself kneeling in front of it. You know, whatever it takes. We'll put it up on the blog. <laughs> Today, we are going to be talking about 10 ways to have a crappy deal. Here's the thing, Ian. For whatever reason, we see a lot of smart people making dumb deals. And we don't know why. It might be that this kind of thing doesn't come up every day, right? It's not every single day that most small business owners are cutting deals. And yeah, I mean, let's be real here, Dan. Like, when, when, like, let's think of a book. Like, what's the last business book you read that somebody walked you through, like, all these different scenarios or even one or two scenarios of how to cut a deal? I mean, I haven't read one lately. Have you? Yeah. I mean, and it's tough because this is the name of the game. This is how you get equity in ventures is by cutting deals. And I think I see a lot of people being opportunistic instead of respecting the process. So they use, a, a, you know, a deal as a chance to kind of go after an opportunity rather than say, is this really something that I want to be involved in for the next five to 10 years of my life? Because trust me, boss man, me and you know, I mean, that fateful 
conversation when you installed a car stereo in my entrepreneur mobile and we decided we'd start a business together. No small conversation, good sir, because here we are seven years later having the same talk. And by the way, we're still buying, we're still buying cars with 200,000 miles on it. So, I mean, maybe not the best deal. <laughs> yeah, you know what I was thinking the other day was uh, I'm looking forward to the day where my uh, relationship with my girlfriend eclipses, you know, or at least it's, it's got to come. I, I know it's never going to be able to catch up with you, but man, it would be nice to have a, a, a decent relationship outside of you. I mean, is See, it we're so on, hard? We're all on the same page, man. I totally agree with that ambition. It, it is awkward when you try to snuggle me during our, our strategy meetings, man. <laughs> all right. So let's get on to uh, uh, the 10 ways to have a shitty deal. These are all inspired by things that we've seen in real life that are red flags when it comes to cutting a deal, trying to get equity in a company, trying to get investment, all these kinds of things. So number one, Ian, and this is one of the most common ones, we'll call it sexy equity. Equity in a small business owner's hands can be a very dangerous thing. One time I had an employee ask me for equity. And I said, you know, look, look, like this is the way that owners of small businesses screw you is by having your salary. So taking 50 grand a year off your salary and giving you a four, three to four percent interest in the company with terms. And this is something for a young person that can be very seductive. And I want people just to watch out for this because four percent in a small business. What does that get you? It gets you nothing. So. Nothing, nothing. And it saves the owner of the company 50 grand a year. I would take the 50 grand and buy an asset with it rather than taking 4% in an asset that you have zero control over. Zero control to get that, to sell those shares, zero control to take money out off of those shares. And they're probably, even in a lot of situations like this, Ian, I've seen the small business owners extend parameters that you need to fulfill in order to get this equity. So you're giving up cash in the mean term to get equity. And when's the last time that you just heard somebody, well, man, I had 4% in this small business and it really, that, you know, really set me, set me up for life. When's the last right. time you heard that story? Yeah. Like it, like it takes, it takes you four years to be uh, vested a hundred percent and 4%. So, okay, Dan, so the, the deal with this, it's, it's a, it's a trick. It's a trick. So what you're saying is, uh, you know, small business owner comes to your employee and you say, look, I'll give you five, 10% of this company. But because of that, you're going to have to take a 50% pay raise or a pay cut. Yeah. And it's a trap because here's the thing about small business and equity. For the first several years of our business, Dan, equity basically meant nothing in terms of distribution. So uh, we couldn't pay ourselves any distributions at the end of the year because we're constantly reinvesting in the company. And if you're on the short end of that stick, meaning you've got a minority stake, you have no say in as to when the company reinvests uh, profits back into the company and when distributions are made out to the shareholders. So, you know, having a minority stake in a small business, uh, almost always a bad idea. Like you said, that maybe there's some some instances where the business blows up, $100 million. Yeah, I'd love to own 5% of that. But really, are we talking about that kind of business? Yeah, I mean, and uh, well, again, in terms of respecting the process, you know, maybe I don't want to. Maybe I'm just not thinking big. But if if you're betting on things going to a hundred million dollars or whatever, you might be doing a lot of betting. And the problem is, is like with these kinds of situations, is you're betting with your job and your time. So you can't put a bunch of chips on the table. You're talking about this is your job, 
And so, you know, I think this this is the issue with the sexy equity. It's a bunch of small business owners taking cues from the startup world, and it just doesn't work like that. I mean, even if you own 4% of a $3 million company, it's not like you're sitting pretty. You sit down with the spreadsheets on that one, and it's, you're, not, you're not in Mercedes territory. You're in Acura Integra territory. Uh, hey, that's not a bad place to be, man. Do you <laughs> have you seen the you remember the like the confetti seats? That's what I got. Like black with the confetti in the center. Those are those are tight, man. All this can be yours. Just take five percent equity and a fifty thousand dollar paycheck. Number two, sloppy sharing. Okay, so I heard a story the other day from from an entrepreneur, and he said basically, look, this guy has a distribution channel, which he more or less kind of understood. He's going to pay me X amount of money, and I am going to generate an asset for him. In this case, it was like an e-course or an e-book, let's say. And then I'm going to generate the asset. He's going to distribute it. We're going to split everything 50-50. And this is a really dangerous deal structure. Uh, and there's a couple things you want to look out for. Number one is not being laser clear about how you're going to share the established asset. Because a lot of times the sharers say, I get this distribution channel, I'll distribute it for you. Or really, how many times are you gonna let me talk to those people? Am I gonna own the list once they respond? So getting granular on these things is really important because people bait and switch this kind of stuff all the time. Let's say, for example, you write your ebook, you email the list, and that list isn't too happy about it. Then all of a sudden, that partner doesn't want to email the list anymore. Right. Yeah. One thing I want to bring up here, Dan, is, uh, and this goes for all these 10 bad deals that we're going to talk about, is like equity is for the life of the business. Equity is forever until that business doesn't exist anymore. So we're talking about sloppy sharing here. When you cut a deal in the beginning, you've got to have the foresight to see how that's going to play out in the end. So, if you guys are talking about like cutting a deal, like, uh, I, you know, uh, we're going to mail my list. That's the asset that I'm bringing. You're going to create the asset that we're going to mail the list. Like, what happens after the first time, like you said, that you mail that? What, what about the third time? You know, what about the future? Yeah. How's that going to play out in the long term? We cut a deal one time with a guy who said, hey, you know, I'll, I want equity, and part of the reason that I get equity is because I'm going to give you guys free warehousing. This is a true story, right? Remember this one? Yeah, and, and, true story. And, okay, two years later, that warehousing price changed. And things changed with other elements of the business, and all of a sudden wasn't so keen to continue to offer that as part of the deal. And this is the kind of thing that I mean where you, you at that point as someone who's extended equity to this person, you have no power to ensure that that sharing continues. And that's another thing I want people to think about when they get into these deals. It's like, uh, you know, in this particular deal, I was like, well, okay, so what, how are you going to get paid? Oh, we're going to split everything 50-50. Okay, well, like, how are you going to get paid? Well, he's going to send me 50% of the, really? He's going to send you 50% of the profits? This, again, is a giant red flag, right? You should have equal access to the technology that that distributes the wealth. If you don't, I mean, so again, I think part of the reason that deals can be so difficult for people to talk about is people aren't used to thinking about real power. Oftentimes, especially in the West, I find, you know, in the West, we believe so much in things like, you know, the, lo the lawyers are going to come in and sweep through and take care of it or 
It's a, oh, a we've got a, a contract rule. written out, and this, or, you know, uh, like you know what we, this guy said. You know what this guy said stuff. to me. I, I don't want to throw anybody under the bus, but uh, this is a real thing. It's just an honest thing. He said, "You know what? We have a lot of common friends, and I, I don't see him that way." And I'm thinking to myself, like, you made a great joke. We were talking about this. And you were like, "Yeah, when's the last time uh, you saw two uh, old friends fall out of friendship?" When's the last time you saw a married couple break up? It's like, is it really? Would it really surprise you that things might change a year from now? Right. <laughs> Look, I don't want to. I don't want to make make light of it. Look, if you're gonna share, make sure that you have a real stake in the future asset, and you have a real uh, grip into that sharing. So you know. Own the PayPal account 50-50, right? Have access to the PayPal account. Don't assume that this person's going to send you 50% and they're going to love you for the next three years. And by the way, people get different ideas about this too because people get resentful then. It's like, hey, the only reason you're selling this asset is because it was my list and I took a hit on this list because, you know, you know, it's not your fault that you cause collateral damage to their other business. Right. But that could very well be the case in these sloppy sharing deal structures. All right, number three, Ian, no control, no dice. This is you know, a basic thing where, look, if you don't own a controlling interest in a small business and it's your first go at the, at the rim, so to speak, I just, I don't, I'm not that compelled by it. I'm, I'm concerned about it. Yeah. Here's the thing. Equity, equity is sort of like networking. We've often said networking is just a multiplier. So if you're a zero, it doesn't matter if you're shaking Jimmy Carter's hand. He can't do anything for you, right? Because you've got nothing to activate, nothing to catalyze. So I think it's the same thing. Equity is only activated by power. So yes, on paper, you own 4% of a small business. But if you don't have power to activate that, you got nothing. Yeah, my handshake deal with my brother-in-law said he was going to send me 50% of what came through this PayPal account, but maybe your brother-in-law has a completely different idea about what 50% means. I mean, especially when it comes to real money in real pockets, you can, you'll, the, the creativity that people could come up with when it comes <laughs> to mathematics, my friend. So again, uh, equity is only activated by power. If you don't have control of the business and control of the assets, you might not be able to take advantage of your equity. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so 50%, Dan, I think that this is, this is tough. You know, I know people that are in successful partnerships that own less than 50%, but most of those businesses are very large and they're doing very well. And and it's worked out for some of them, but not not the not the majority of people. So if you're not in control of the business, you know, be in control of your destiny. So have in your agreements power levers, like to make sure, hey, I'm getting paid on these bases based on these terms. I can get out of the business based on these terms. You know, make sure that you have recourse, and that's it. Correct. Correct. Okay, and on your point there, Dan, and making sure that you can get out of the business, this is an interesting one that came up uh, not too long ago that, that I heard is, you know, if you own 35% of a business, that ownership stake is only worth what you can get for it, potentially from the other partners, right? So if you want to yeah. sell out of your part of the business, you got to make sure that somebody's got money to buy it from you, right? 
yeah. and that's part of this due diligence process. Like when you go into a partnership with somebody, Dan, we we've got a we've got a very open relationship, right? Like nothing is not on the table for us. Everything's on the table. So we can talk about girlfriends, we can talk about spending habits, we can talk about drug habits, we can talk all that stuff because it impacts in one way or another our relationship and our partnership. And I think that's part of the reason why you we've been uh, fairly successful in the past, right? So, well, you were you were mentioning you were mentioning earlier, and I thought it was an interesting point is that me and you, I mean, we were we, we met at the middle school dance, bro. I mean, we're middle school lovers. We were the first time out of the gate, and it's even more important, I think, to have that deep dive. Whereas when later on down the pike, when we partnered with a character like Jesse Lawler, I don't think we necessarily need to look at Jesse's bank account. We have to have a general idea. Now, we definitely asked, did some due diligence, like, you know, if this scenario would come up, could you cash inject this amount to do that? But we weren't like, let me look at this. That's true. Necessarily. But we can afford to do that at this point. But it would have been foolhardy to do that at the beginning. And I think a lot of people do this because, you know, and and we're going to get to this point further down. But I mean, a lot of times when someone who kind of proclaims to be a baller wants to uh, partner with you, maybe they're not so much of a baller. Maybe not. Maybe not. But maybe uh, maybe okay, not. so you, you you touched on something there that I think needs a little bit more explanation. So it's like, well, so why did you go into a partnership? Because now we're in a partnership, and we own. You know, I personally own less than fifty percent, right? And so we're saying no control, no dice, right? But it's a little bit different. So the way this is the way that I kind of explain it to myself the other day. If you're getting in your first venture and you're smart and you've got vision, you know, I think you go for fifty percent or more. Uh, you control the asset, you control your destiny. If you're in a position where we're at, Dan, we've got a little bit of excess cash and this this investment that we've made, it's not it's not our main focus. It's actually nobody's main focus. None of the partners. It's none of the partners' main focus. And so we can afford to have a little bit less equity in it and a little bit less control all the way around. Sure. It's not our main it's not the main event for us. Yeah, and and that's again, you know, this whole there's a theme underlying all this, which is having the confidence in yourself to properly value yourself and to understand that there's a huge, huge opportunity cost to getting into the wrong partnership. Number four, by the way, how do we have a little bit of extra cash on hand? That's right, because you drive a $2,000 automobile. (laughs) Number four, fame is lame, unless you're George Foreman. What do I mean by this, Ian? I mean that people overvalue the aura of people. I see this one happening all the time. Oh, yeah, you know, Sherry used to work at Microsoft, and now she's starting a consulting firm, and, I, and she's going to give me 15%, and I'm going to work for 45 grand a year or whatever. This is lame, I think. Like, you know, first off, there's a reason why they're offering you that kind of deal, because they can't afford to do something else. And second off, uh, I just don't buy the lame prestige credentials. My credential is what is your track record? What have you done in the past that's going to show me that you're going to do it in the future? I don't want to hear that you gave a speech at freaking South by Southwest because you know what that means, Ian? It means that you might give a speech at a future South by Southwest. Who freaking cares? That doesn't grow a business. I want to hear that you've built a business. I want to hear that you've made some money. I want to hear that you sold the damn thing. I want to hear that you treated your partners in the past with respect and dignity. These are the things I'm looking for. I'm not looking for Microsoft or I wrote for Inc. Magazine or any of this junk. What do you say? What say you? Do you remember, I think around, I don't know, it was back in the day, like when Shark Tank first started and uh, we were reading a lot of Mark Cuban 
like I think one of us pro it was probably me. It was probably me that brought this up. But I was like, man, we should go on a shark tank <laughs> and we should we should we should pitch our business. Wouldn't it be cool if Mark Cuban owned fifteen percent of our business? Yeah. You were like, Hell no, it wouldn't be cool if Mark Cuban owned fifteen percent of our business. <laughs> Are you crazy? What's that guy gonna No, I I'm serious, I remember this question, uh this conversation. He said, What is that guy gonna do for us? I think yeah. in, in, in large part that's true, you know? Like Mark Cuban is like a very visible guy. I think, you know, potentially there are some partnerships that would work out with him, but there's very, very few people that this I think applies to and very few situations and businesses where partnering for fame actually activates and improves the business. Yeah. And, you know, you don't want to be around some prima donna that thinks that they're bringing so much to the business because they're speaking at some conference or something. I just I'm just not into that. In retrospect, probably uh, we should have gone on Shark Tank. Number four, yeah, <laughs> I'm sure Cuba could really move some cat furniture, buddy. Uh, That's probably true. Number number five is the Groucho Marx point is I don't want to be a part of a group that would have me. I think a lot of people look partnering most times is inherently a sign of weakness. So if somebody wants to partner with you, uh, people sometimes get awash in excitement and in an opportunistic flair and, and forget to realize, wait a second, why does this person want to partner with me? Why does this person and, want to give away a percentage of their business? Exactly. This is the kind of they, thinking. It's because they can't afford it, right? They don't have any money. So they're, they're lazy to give it away. To, they, Maybe they don't want to do the work. I mean, that's a very common one. In small business, it very often is, hey, you know, I've worked for the last five years. I don't want to work for the next five years. And that's not a partner that you want. So, I mean, I think just being really clear and open about why is this person coming to you? And I think I've done this a lot, you know, around the table at dinner. And it, it, it very often is the case is when you start to map out how things are going to go is that you don't need the partnership. Nine times out of ten, you don't need the partnership. You can get the money from somewhere else. You can get uh, – and we're going to talk about at the end of the episode some of the reasons that you might want to partner. But again, whenever there's this kind of like opportunistic element, uh, I just want to – you know, I don't hear people sort of – I don't want to be the naysayers, but it just worries me. And I don't see these things working out too well. Speaking of things not working out too well, number six is the bro deal. Hey, before we just go into the bro deal, Dan, I think this is worth uh, mentioning here. Like there's a there's a common theme I think that's coming up through all all these uh, points and it's something that we're really good at and we haven't said explicitly yet. It's forecasting the future and doing thought experiments on these deals. Uh, what's going to happen down the road five years from now? What if this person screws me over? Who's this other partner that I don't even know in the business? You know what I mean? So it's like one of the things that I think we 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 have a high tolerance for and we have a uh, we have a good sense for is uh, smelling bullshit, number one. But number two, kind of predicting the future, the good and the bad future. And I think this is like the the biggest deal that you're going to make. You know, this is like one of the most important deals that you're going to make is this partnership. It's the backbone of your business, and it's what everything rides on. You remember, Dan, in 2010, we almost quit our business because our partnership was failing with our third partner. You know, so it like didn't matter that our business was growing month over month, year over year. Like there was a fundamental problem in our partnership. So this stuff is like really important. And so I think at the beginning of your partnership, you have to. 
think through all the different scenarios and figure out how it's going to be four, five, six years down the road. And if you don't have the ability to do that, I think that you, you've somehow got to talk it out with your partner. You got to say, look, man, uh, I'm like not sure how this is going to work out four years from now. Let's just make sure that we try and think of all the different worst case and best case scenarios. And also you can just, you can, you can throw virtual spaghetti at the wall here. Let's say, okay, let's say, uh, Petco buys a half a million dollars of our cat furniture a year. What's our warehouse look like? How much does that cost? How many employees do we have? What are you going to get paid? What are you going to be doing? Are you still going to be designing pet furniture at that point? I mean, literally like build out a virtual world. It doesn't need to, it doesn't necessarily matter. Like, you know, what are the chances that that happens? Because what you're really having is not a discussion about the future. You're having a discussion about your values. Right. So when you're sitting around the table and say, hey, bro, do you want to start a company that sells a million dollars worth of cat furniture? Like, who's going to say no? Right. Yeah, I want that. And this is the this is the circumstances under which people partner. Well, how about you stretch it a little bit and say, what if things get a little bit tough and the PO comes in? This is a different scenario. How do you feel about that? Have you quit your job yet? You know, are you willing to put money into that company if we need to fulfill an order in China? These are the kinds of conversations that, okay, what are the chances of that happening? Four percent. That doesn't matter. The point is, is do you share values? I think that that's what, what, what you're looking for in a great partnership. I agree. All right. So number six, the bro deal. This is the deal where you don't necessarily share values, but you share spare time. Just because your brother-in-law got somebody to cut his lawn for him and fix the Camaro, and so he's got a couple spare moments and is looking for the next thing to do, does not mean that you should go into business with right. him. Right. And I think that this is just a common thing. And the reason people do it, Ian, is understandable. It's emotional security. It's really nice to, if you're going to do something extremely difficult, like start a business, it's nice to do it with somebody. Just don't do it with the person that's ready at hand. Yeah, yeah. Just be strategic about it, right? You got to be really strategic yeah. about this. Don't don't make it a bro deal because uh, as we've outlined in these last five points, uh, most uh, deals uh, fall apart. So. Number seven, not properly valuing the long-term value of your equity. And this is something that we talk about a lot. This is paying for something in equity that you could, in theory, pay for in cash, right? All right, I got an example for you here, Dan, on this one. So this is how it happens in a lot of small businesses. So you start an energy drink company, right? Your first or some people's first impulses is to partner with the guy that makes sugar. You know, so you say, hey, uh, you know, I've got all these other ingredients. I just need sugar. How about, you know, I give you 15%, 20% of my company. In return, I don't really have to pay for the sugar because I don't have that much money right now and I'm too lazy to take out a loan. And then you're going to own 20% of this uh, energy drink company. Uh, meanwhile, uh, you become Red Bull and you've got this like <laughs> you've got this guy down the street that's got this little sugar factory that just became a multi-billionaire. So right. it's like quite literally a sugar daddy that you don't want. Exactly. It's like you don't partner for anything that you can pay for, right? And in the case of that, like plan on success, plan on your energy drink being successful. Just pay for the sugar, man. Pay for the sugar. You're going to pay for the sugar. We've gone over that. Number eight, handshake deals. I, I don't know. What else can I say about this? Look, I don't care if it's your best friend, your brother-in-law, write the thing down. It's a great exercise. There's no reason to not have an explicit written agreement about what the mutual understanding is. I want to say one thing about these handshake deals, Dan. They're no good, but just because you write it down doesn't mean 
that it's necessarily enforceable and it doesn't necessarily mean that that's what's going to happen either. So I think it's very good to write everything down, but I think at the core, you and your partners have to have an understanding. I mean, you've got to understand each other. You've got to know each other. You've got to believe in each other. You've got to have intent, all that stuff. So, you know, just because it's on paper, it's not going to mean anything. All it's going to mean is that it's going to be even more expensive for a lawyer to dig through that stuff when you guys, uh, you know, have a dispute. All right, number nine, the side gig and hurting your exit velocity. This is sort of an interesting one, but we talked about this getting into a partnership that's on the side of your main project, employment, business, that you're getting equity contingent on your time. So if you're going to do something on the side, get involved because you bring some kind of high-level expertise, some kind of capital or resource that you can offer to the project. Again, this is an issue of not being confident and not properly understanding the opportunity cost of getting into so many ventures that require your time. If you decided to be, I mean, I think, Ian, for for people that are you know project-oriented employees or entrepreneurs, the value for us now is in the results that we can achieve with our time. It's not so much in checking in from nine to five. And that's the critical thing. If, if you're uh, tasked with creating results for multiple businesses with your time, uh, I think that that's a bad deal for you. Uh, you should be focused on giving your time equity to the, main, the project that can have the biggest upside potential for you. And that's what I call about exit velocity. We talk a lot about this with some of the folks that work for us is like, look, like what's going to be your velocity, your trajectory when you exit this opportunity rather than ha- taking your time equity and spreading it across three or four different projects at once and kind of you know, mitigating your ability to create massive results for something that can then become the track record, the sense of inevitability about your work that launches you into bigger opportunities. Does that make sense? Am I making an overly philosophical point here? I think you're maybe a little bit, but I mean, what you're saying is like, you know, don't spread yourself too thin on this stuff. Yeah. You know, focus on the main event, do a good job, and then have, have, have that be your stepping stone to the next thing. And I'll say this, look, I'm all about multiple irons in the fire, but don't make them time irons. (laughs) You know what I mean? Don't promise your time to side ventures. Promise a couple bucks. Promise uh, a quarterly phone call. But if it means that you're going to have to spend a week, a day, a week working on it, just pass, man. Finally, number 10, the situation wherein you don't own the technological control or general control of the resulting asset. Wow, speaking of philosophical, here's the idea. A lot of times people get into partnerships that are basically JVs or they are sort of these sloppy sharing situations that end up creating a new brand or a new asset. And this is, again, having this kind of vision in the future is making sure that you have a real sense of control over that, whether that's going to be you know, if you're creating a new brand, make sure that, you know, you own the GoDaddy account jointly. If if there's a new list that gets segmented, so, hey, if, if I'm going to email to your list and then all the people that open that email, do you then own that list? And look, again, like you, you want to make sure that you're getting into good deals, not bad deals. So um, this is something that you want to keep your mind on. 
Yeah, totally, man. And I think this is especially true for uh, a lot of internet marketers out there that are that are running these JVs. Like, I, I wonder, like, I haven't been on the forefront of those deals because uh, we don't participate in them. Imagine yeah. that. Like, I, I wonder who owns those assets and how that works out in in the long term because a lot of times it does end up building a brand. So, yeah, and and well, in the partnership. So what happens is like you become the engine that built that asset, you know, whether it's like the example we talked about earlier, because like you wrote the great ebook or the great program, or you wrote the great email sequence or whatever it was that created the asset. And then it could very easily fall into the control of somebody else. If you're not kind of thinking this stuff through into the future, who is going to control in a real way, the resulting asset. I mean, it is not real control to say that you will have privileges to email that list for the next two years. That's not the kind of partnership or deal that you want to get involved in. You want to actually own the AWeber account with the person that you share the list with of the people who open the email or whatever. Those emails are going to get transferred to an account that you're going to own together. I think it, it makes sense to be very serious about what's going to happen with those assets from the beginning, in particular if you're going to be building them off of the back of your list or your time. And you know what, Dan, I think, you know, this last point and some of these other points boils down to laziness, you know, it's like, it's, it's, it's like very hard to do that. It's like, okay, Dan, uh, like, do you want to own this AWeber account with me? You know, it's like, uh, no, like, how about you just own it? Like, don't even share the password with me and all this stuff. Like, it comes down to laziness. I think a lot of times, you know, I think we're pretty clear on this. Stay out of this stuff. You know, don't be an opportunist, respect the process. What is the upside of partnerships, man? I think I think I think net net we've done a pretty good job with it. One of the things I think about Ian is is we'll call it the the Paul and John principle. When you look at a lot of behind the music, Ian, I was a big VH1 fan growing up. When you look at a lot of these things, I've studied this <laughs> stuff, and I realize that behind a lot of great bands, there is a creative tension, a struggle between two people with clear visions that aren't always lining up. And then when Paul decides that he's going to write some solo records or John decides that he wants to hang out with the wife and do some experimental tunes, you know, it's good. It's good. But it wouldn't necessarily be, you know, playing in every cafe or every jukebox in America. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? I think that we have a little bit of that, too. And I think that when I wake up in the morning, I have to answer to you. We've all done the friendship math. When a a buddy comes to you and he says, you know, I'm going to do this and that with this thing, with my business. And uh, you kind of say, you know what, buddy, I've been where you're going and this isn't going to work out for you. You ought to do this. And they're not hearing it. And you kind of do the friendship math at that point, right? You're kind of saying, am I going to lay it on the line for this guy? Risk the friendship to tell him that he's being a bonehead? No, you don't. You say, you know what, bro? <laughs> Go Can for I get it. you another beer? You have fun with that. You have fun with that. Six months later, let's talk about it. Ian, but when you come to me with the bonehead idea, or I come to you with the bonehead idea, it's on the line. That's a fight. And it's a fun fight because I think we've learned over the years that that becomes something beautiful and productive for us. It becomes, you know, so we've kind of reframed it. Whereas in most relationships that aren't business partnerships, those things are terrorizing. Those things can potentially hurt the relationship. 
But whereas when I come to you and say, hey, I'm not quite happy with, with how you're doing things, that's an opportunity for us. And, and I think that that's a unique thing that partnerships yes. create. Yes. Yeah, I think you're right, Dan. I actually, I'm having this uh, argument with our mutual friend right now. His car is uh, blowing white smoke. And I'm telling him, I'm telling him, look, man. <laughs> It's inevitable. It's inevitable. This isn't going to heal itself, okay? It's not human skin. You can't put a Band-Aid on it, man. And uh, we've gotten to the point in the conversation where I'm just not willing to risk my friendship over convincing him that some leak stop is going gonna, is gonna to solve this problem, you know? Yeah, so definitely, man. Thank you for forcing me to get my head gasket changed. I appreciate that. <laughs> All right, Ian. Uh, of course, if you guys want to see the show notes... This one's at tropicalmba.com slash deals. Finally, before we cut this very long episode off, we're going to highlight some of the lovely iTunes reviews and comments that we've received over some rap music. Let's call it rap and reviews. DJ Bossman, what's the track this week? Yeah, one of my new favorite rappers, uh, Action Bronson. He says, uh, why would I have a bodyguard when I look like the bodyguard? I agree. Action Bronson is a huge guy. This is a track called Brunch, and we're going to do some rapping reviews. No, you broke my heart, woman, when you said goodbye to me. You said goodbye to me Christina writes with my favorite comment of the week, Ian, because it puffs up my ego, which... Uh, it needs none of that, of course. Yes, this podcast is unique, definitely. Now, let me tell you why. Do tell me why. When I first found your blog and listened to your podcast, I didn't relate. Back then, I was reading Copy Blogger, Pro Blogger, and all those fancy sites. I stumbled upon your blog and thought, what the hell are these guys talking about? <laughs> it's like they were speaking Chinese. You were so different, I couldn't relate, but I was curious, so I plowed on. Then, a few days later, something magically clicked and my brain saw the light. These guys are talking about cra- not crafting, these guys aren't talking about crafting headlines and adding pop ups to a website. They are talking about building and running real businesses. And I don't want to craft headlines, I want to build something useful for others and make money out of it. Make money out of it. I've been trying to learn from the wrong people. What I understood that, my mindset changed 100% for the better, and that's the reason why I'm such a passionate advocate of what you guys do. TLDR, you talk about the core of building and running businesses, not about superficial aspects which are completely useless unless you have a real business. You are talking about building the foundation of the house, not the color that I'll paint the walls with. Beautiful. Thank you. Paquette 2386. I believe this is Eric Paquette. It's rare to find such an inspirational and actionable advice in the same place, but Dan and Ian bring it both every single week listening to the Tropical MBAs. Walking is like walking through a room with bricks of gold all over the floor. All you need to do is stop and pick one up. I've never been in that room, but it sounds nice. I'd love to go there. I'd drive there in my Acura Integra. I'll tell you this. I, I think that the, the listeners of this show really bring out the quill when it, for these reviews. I mean, I'm, this is some really inspiring wordcraft. Five stars, continuing the legacy of awesomeness. This is a review from America by Bobby Fett. This is a seamless transition from the LBP. Same great guys, same great content, same crappy palm tree logo, just at a new domain. And that domain is tropicalmba.com slash deals. You can go and check out all the show notes. Maybe Boss Man will give us a picture of that new ride. Can you do that for us, Boss No man? problem, man. All right. Appreciate that. All right. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you guys next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. 
Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.